And go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 2, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. This morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Please open your Bible to Romans, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. God doesn't play dice. You heard that quotation before? That's one of the most famous quotations from Albert Einstein. God doesn't play dice. Now, Einstein didn't necessarily believe in God, but he he made this statement due to his disagreements with the theory of quantum mechanics. The theory of quantum mechanics proposes that on the quantum level, the universe is totally random. But Einstein, in all of his scientific study, had observed that what is scientifically known and provable about the universe shows that there are underlying laws of nature, underlying laws of physics that govern the universe we live in. It is not randomness. So for Einstein, chance and randomness were not part of nature. He he understood that there is a rationality to the universe. See, Einstein, as we saw previously in Romans chapter 1, he visibly, what Paul would say is visibly saw the attributes of God in his creation. Though Einstein might have rejected such a revelation, there was some evidence that if there was a God who did create the universe, that God didn't play dice. But that's not all that God doesn't play. When we move from Romans 1 to Romans 2, where we are this morning, we also see that God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't show any partiality. He doesn't show any favoritism in his judgment. Paul wrote this letter after years of evangelistic ministry, years of sharing the gospel, refuting different arguments that people would have against Christ, and and he knew the likely arguments that were going to come in response to Romans 1. He knows that when in Romans 1, when Paul talked about the wrath of God and all ungodliness and unrighteousness and how such wrath is revealed as we observe the fallen world around us, and how that God has given people over to the lust of their heart, their debased mind, which we looked at last week in Pastor Bob's sermon. He knows that when religious people hear such teaching, especially religious people like religious Jews, they would react by saying, yes, that's right. All those people, all those pagans, they're under God's wrath. Preach it, Paul. We're glad that that our religion and our position before God as God's chosen people, they protect us from having such an experience under his wrath. And the question that Paul brings up next is, is that true? Are there religious exemptions, exceptions to God's wrath? Paul knows that, uh, that this argument that's going to be coming from those who are religious, from especially religious Jews. And so in Romans 2, Paul focuses on the question, are there any exceptions from God's wrath for religious people? And the short answer, if you want to know what the whole sermon's going to be about, what Paul's answer is, no. There you go. You got the sermon. You're done. See, what what Paul does here is he switches audiences. He switches audiences in Romans 2 and says, now hold on. I'm talking to all y'all. He's getting a little Southern here. He's not just talking to pagan Gentiles. He's talking to religious twos as well. He says, you all need the gospel because everyone, unless they repent and turn to Christ, is under God's wrath. There are no religious exceptions on the last day. There are no religious privileges in God's judgment. 
But more important than the answer no, so you can't just close your Bible and head to lunch, I'm sorry, because Paul developed this argument. He shows why that this is the case. And here's Paul's reason. Here's his point, is that religious privileges contradict God's impartiality. That's the point he's trying to make, that religious privileges in judgment contradict God's impartiality. God's impartiality in his nature, God's impartiality in his revelation show that there are no religious exceptions on the last day. Let's look at this argument here. Let's, let's look first at Paul establishes in, in verses 1 through 5 the, the need of the religious. Look at verses 1 and 2 in particular with me right now. Where Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So Paul starts off by saying, therefore, which makes us have to ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore, right? As we studied in Romans 1, we see Paul teaching about how God's wrath is coming, has come upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness in the world. And he ends chapter 1 in verse 32 by saying, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Now, this was a very common argument. Paul didn't come up with that sort of statement there at the end of Romans 1. This is very common in Jewish writings as an anti-Gentile argument against this Gentile Hellenistic type of life in, in the first century. And so he knows that, that religious people, especially as I said, Jew, religious pious Jews would say, yes, we agree to Romans 1. So then Paul turns the table and says, therefore, you also have no excuse. There's an important switch if you see in your Bibles. In Romans chapter 1, it's all they. They, 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 they. Third person plural. They, they, they. In Romans chapter 2, he switches from they to you. You, 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 you. A different audience here. A different group. And what Paul's doing with this you is he's, he's using a genre called diatribe, where he's setting up a hypothetical group of dialogue partners and he's saying, anyone like this hypothetical group, he's saying, here, you have no excuse as well. And so that should make us ask the question, who is this you? If he's focusing on this you in our passage, who's the you? There's two keys to understanding who the you is. First is the way he describes you in verse 1. Look at that in verse 1. He says, you have no excuse, O man. I don't know if when we're reading that, that stands out to you, but that's kind of a that's a different expression, right? Oh, man. Oh, what? What, what is that from? Right? We don't, that, that's a different kind of address, a different kind of speech. During meet and greet time today, you didn't go up to someone and say, how are you, oh, man? Right? That's, that's, this, this, he, Paul is importing some different language into the text, and it should make us ask, where is that from? See, Paul's not just getting creative here. He's pulling this expression directly out of the Old Testament. You might have noticed that it comes directly out of the passage we had John Paul read from Micah chapter 6 this morning. This is a passage that any faithful Jewish man or woman would, would recognize. Micah 6 that John Paul read is a passage that describes God's covenant lawsuit against Israel. It's using legal language where God is bringing his judgment against his people Israel. He's summoning heavens and earth as the witnesses to testify of Israel's sin, and he's pronouncing judgment on his people. And he concludes that, 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 that lawsuit by saying, he has told you, 
oh man, that's where Paul draws it from. What is good and what does the Lord Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God? See, Paul is speaking here in Old Testament terms to his Jewish brethren, reminding them that God has always held his people accountable. God has always brought judgment on his people, and he will also again in the future. They have no excuse. And this is confirmed then later by the second he, which we see starting in verse 12. He specifically deals with Jewish advantages, Jewish privileges of the law and circumcision that just confirms that this is specifically focused on religious Jews. And so he's saying, in the same way, if you look across the page in chapter 1, verse 20, when he looked at the Gentile world and says, they're without excuse for their unrighteousness. Now, in the same way, he uses the same word in chapter 2, verse 1, and says, religious Jews, religious people are also without excuse. But the question is, why? Why are they without excuse? We have to look at Paul's reasoning. You see that for, halfway through verse 1? For this way? So here's the reason why. Um, for... In passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. You see, the, notice the reason here that, they're, that they are condemning themselves, though. It's not for the judging, right? It's, they're not being condemned for calling out unrighteousness, ungodliness. Paul expects that any religious Jew would agree, and, and Paul himself did that. Jesus himself did that, calling out all ungodliness and, and, and unrighteousness. But the condemnation is not for that, but because, it's not because of judging, but because you who are judging, what? Practice the very same things. You see, here's what Paul says is bringing the condemnation. It's not from calling out sin. It's not for calling people to repentance. But it's for judging others for their unrepentant sin while you yourself are unwilling to repent from your sin. That's the issue Paul is setting up here. And what are those same things? Well, we have to look back at how he ended chapter 1. Chapter 1, if you look at verses 29 and 31, see, after the whole chapter, he's talking about all kinds of sexual immorality. Then Paul switches and gives this list of sins in verse 29, which doesn't focus on outward sexual immorality. It focuses on inward prideful immorality, which manifests an outward divisiveness. See, what he's doing is he's setting up already chapter 2 at the end of verse 1 and saying, for all the religious people would say, yes, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong. And then he starts talking about these, these prideful intentions of the heart, and Paul starts going, wait a minute, don't you see that you're there too? Don't you see that you're included in this list as well? That's Paul's argument here. And then in verse 2, two, he even goes on to imply, you, you religious people, you also agree with this truth that God's righteous judgment is based on truth, right? Then why would you think you're exempt from any such accountability if you yourself are unwilling to repent for practicing the same sort of prideful idolatry? Maybe it's not the same form externally, but it's the same source internally in your hearts. You see, Paul agrees that to say that God's judgment would fall on those who do evil, that's a right statement. It is right to call people to repentance. But only if the one doing that calling to repentance, the one doing that judging, has demonstrated repentance first themselves. See, 
we, we, we should ask ourselves, we should look at this passage and ask ourselves, what is our attitude? What is our attitude toward the unrighteousness we see in the world? Paul says, yes, we should call out sin. Yes, we should call out unrighteousness. But not because we have some sort of moral superiority. Not because of our spiritual pride. But because we recognize that we are sinners ourselves. And we have been saved through repentance and the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are simply calling other people to experience that same type of repentance and grace that we've experienced. Otherwise, Paul says, if we have not experienced that, if we have not repented ourselves, we share in that same judgment. And in light of that shared judgment, look at verses 3 to 5. Paul goes on to say, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? So Paul, again, is making this argument. He starts using these rhetorical questions. He starts asking, do you agree that even as a religious Jew that you're under God's judgment? If not, then are you then presuming on the kindness and patience of God, it's one or the other. Either you agree that everyone's under judgment or you think you have some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card here because of God's kindness. By the way, this kindness is not just, oh, look how nice God is. That's not the kindness he's talking about. This is Old Testament language of God's special covenantal favor and kindness in choosing Israel as his people. But when the result of that choosing doesn't match the purpose of that choosing, of that kindness, the purpose was for repentance, it was meant to lead them to repentance, it means that they are presuming on the kindness. Or if you have a Christian standard Bible, that they are despising his kindness. If you have a new international version of the Bible, you are showing contempt for God's kindness. How do they show contempt for God's kindness? Because they are they are failing to show respect for God in his ways, in his glory, in his purposes, and saying that they don't think they need to repent. They, they think that they're better than the Gentile world. The Gentiles, they need to repent, but, but not the Jews. In fact, this was very common. Or this was the same, the same as the Gentile world, which said uh, in, in, in 121, Paul said, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him. They thought, they had such a favorable status with God that they didn't need to repent. You see this in the Jewish literature of the first century. You find this in things like the wisdom of Solomon, which says, for even if we sin, we belong to you because we know your power. So just like the Gentile world we saw in chapter 1, verse 21, their foolish hearts were darkened, the unrepentant religious Jews also display that sort of hard and impenitent heart. You see in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God told Israel that if they were going to be able to love and obey God, they weren't going to be able to do it themselves. They needed God to come and to use the language of the Old Testament. They needed God to circumcise their hearts. They needed new hearts. God says, I'm giving you all the law and I'm giving you all the ways to have a relationship with me, but you're not going to be able to do it. You need new hearts. You need this new covenant promise that Jeremiah talks about, of God coming and giving him new hearts and writing the law of God on their hearts. 
But until they repent and experience that new covenant promise, promised by Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, then they're just in the same sinking ship as the rest of humanity. Look at verse 5. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's Paul's point. He's saying he's refuting any idea that any religious Jew or any other religious person can think that they are right before God without having repented and experiencing the grace of God through the fulfilled new covenant work in Jesus Christ. In other words, those who are religious need the gospel of Jesus just as much as the rest of the world. There's no difference. Now, we need to be careful how we apply these passages because they weren't primarily written for us. They were primarily written out of Paul's heart and love for his Jewish brethren to call them to to see the, the fulfilled promises in Christ. But there is a universal principle we can see applying to everyone here. And that principle is we all need the gospel, right? There are no exceptions to the need of the gospel. In fact, if you're visiting with us this morning and you see yourself as a religious person or a moral person, we want to say that, welcome. We are glad that you're here, that Paul says that he has good news for you. That's what the word word gospel means. It's good news. And the good news is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is unlike any other religion, any other worldview that you could encounter. See, every other religion or worldview is really a form of good advice. It's good advice about what you can do to be good enough, what you can try to do to be better, what you can try to do to be good enough before God, what you can do to try to be good enough in the eyes of other people, what you can try to do to be good enough to be righteous. The problem with good news or good advice is that good advice itself is never good enough because we never measure up. We can never follow that good advice perfectly. And so we end up practicing the very same things we condemn others for. Right? We see that. I mean, that is social media in a statement, right? You condemn someone else for it, and you end up doing the exact same things in the way that you do that, right? We, we, you, you, we can't be consistent with that. And so, and that's what the Bible describes is that we're sinners, that we have, we have sinned and we, can't, we, can't, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. Not just good advice, but good news is what God has done for you, is that God loved you and sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life for you that you can never live. And sent Jesus and had Jesus die on the cross for you to pay for your sins, to be the substitute for the punishment that we deserve, that you and I deserve for our sins. That's why he died on the cross and then rose Jesus from the dead three days later to vindicate and prove that this this forgiveness is available to you as a free gift. Paul's going to say later that it's a gift of grace. That means it's a free gift. If you repent, that means turn from your sinful life and turn to placing your faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. See, this is not about good advice, about what you can do to try to to make yourself right. This is about good news of what God has done for you to make it as a free gift for you. 
We would love to tell you more about this gift of eternal life. We would love to tell you more about Jesus and, and, and this offer of salvation. Please don't, if you have questions, please don't leave today without asking the person who brought you. Ask any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary afterwards. I'd love to answer your questions about this good news, this gospel good news that the, 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 the Bible has for you. And for, for, for Christians that are here this morning who have experienced this saving good gift of, of, through Christ, through repentance and faith. What do we learn from this passage? How does, how does this apply to us? Is it just about everyone out there? I think there's, there are ways that this applies to us as well. First of all, we need to evaluate our own hearts, right? Have we truly repented? Or do I think that just because I've been going to church that I have some religious favor with God that's going to get me through on the last day? Or do we see that we are sinners saved by the grace of Christ? And if we see ourselves that way, if that's true, that should, like Paul, give us a different perspective and attitude when we look at the world. Right? Paul is an example for us. As we look at the ungodliness in the world around us, Paul should set our example. See, yes, we should call out what is, we understand is evil and wrong according to the word of God. We should call for repentance, but not because we think we have some inherent moral superiority or religious favor but that we understand that it's through repentance that we have experienced the saving righteousness of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that, that we, we, we call for repentance because we understand that repentance is the door to salvation. See, I remember a pastor, hearing a pastor on TV once who was asked to define evangelical Christians, and he defined evangelical Christians as those who oppose gay marriage and those who oppose abortion. No. No, we do stand for, for right and what is right and true according to God's word, but that is not what defines us. The word evangelical comes from the word evangel. The word evangel means good news. Evangelicals who are people all about the gospel, the gospel of repentance. So yes, we call to repentance because that's how we experience God's grace. It's a gospel of grace. The gospel of repentance and grace our repentance, which, ex which resulted in our experience of God's grace in Christ. So we offer the same to others. Now notice how Paul, as he's making this argument, backs up why then everyone's under the same judgment. Look, as he starts to talk about the impartiality of God. This is the reason why everyone's under the same judgment. The impartiality of God. Look at verse 6, where he says, He, God, will render to each one according to his works. God will render, God will repay each one on the final day according to his works. Now, there's some that might say, wait a minute, this, we, we are a church that we understand that we're saved by grace alone and faith alone. And so I look at this passage and go, what? This might raise a theological question here. If Paul, in two chapters later in chapter 3, in the Bible, teach that we're saved by grace alone, how is the final judgment going to be reckoned according to works. There's three pop popular ways to try to put together this theological question. The first way is some people say, Paul just, he's not really consistent. He's just kind of throwing things out, right? Paul says this in Romans 2. Paul says that in Romans 3. But Paul's not really trying to be consistent with himself. The second way that people try to put this theological puzzle together is they say, oh, Paul's just talking in hypotheticals here. Paul's saying, hypothetically, if someone could have 
never sin and have those good works, then they hypothetically would be right on the last day. But no one's really like that, so this is all just a hypothetical exercise. But see, both of those two opinions are refuted by the same evidence. See, Paul routinely, not just here, over and over, teaches both that we're saved by grace and that works are necessary to enter the kingdom of God. See, Paul doesn't see these two as contradictory. We, in our rationality, might say, I can't see how those put together. And Paul says, yeah, they put together just fine. Instead, see, the way that Paul understands this, Paul is saying that theologically, good works are distinguishable from salvation by grace, but they're also inseparable from salvation by grace. Let me say this again. This is important if you want to understand how this theologically fits together. Good works are distinguishable from grace, but they're also inseparable from grace. Jesus said the same thing. He says, you think about the the fruit tree. If you have a fruit tree in your backyard, right? If you think about the fruit tree in your backyard, and and the good it's a good tree because it produces good fruit. But we all understand that the tree is distinguishable from the fruit, right? The tree is not the fruit, and the fruit is not the tree. You are not picking trees to put in your apple pie. Right? The apple is not the tree. But we also would understand that the tree is in, good tree is inseparable from good fruit. How do you know it's a good tree? Because it makes good fruit. They're distinguishable, but inseparable. See, Paul is speaking here about Christians who, yes, they keep the law, by, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And those good works are evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in their life. It's evidence of the regeneration that God has given. It's evidence that, that of what God has done by grace on that last day. That's the theological answer here. But here's the bigger issue. Paul isn't being contradictory, and he's not being hypothetical, but he's also not trying to put a theological treatise on grace and works together. Paul is consistent, and that's how Paul's thinking as we see the the larger biblical works of Paul. But right here, he's not trying to focus on this grace-works issue. Right here, his point is to demonstrate that all people, including pious Jews and other religious people, are in the same position as the rest of humanity in falling short of God's righteousness and needing the saving work of Jesus Christ. Look look how he continues this argument. Look at verses 7 through 11. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, depending on the Bible translation you have, you might notice if you have a New American Standard translation or a King James translation that there are actually no main verbs in verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10 has no main verbs. Paul, that is bad English. That is what we call a run-on sentence. That is not A-level work, Paul. We need a little rewrite here. In in fact, many of your translations, if you have an ESV or other translations, they actually put words like um, will be and and, and those sort of words because in English, we're not used to having sentences without words. That was pounded out of us in elementary school. Some of us later, but that's okay. But the point is with Paul is he's leaving out the verbs because Paul wants us to ask, what's the verb? What what is it that causes the results in verses 7 and 10 of eternal life 
for those demonstrating Holy Spirit-wrought works? What is it that causes the results in verses 8 and 9 of eternal punishment for those who are self-seeking, worshiping themselves instead of God? What's the verb? The verb's in verse 6. The verb in verse 6 describes the whole rest of the passage. He will render. All of verses 7 through 10, it just explains verse 6. God is the judge. God is the judge rendering these judgments. And why is it significant that God is the one rendering these judgments? Look at his conclusion in verse 11. For God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what religious heritage you claim to come from. There is a level playing field when it comes to God's ultimate verdict because God shows no partiality. Notice how Paul emphasizes this. Two times he points out this to the Jew and then also to the Greek. See, the Jews would have understood in the first century, we see in their documents, that they were the first in salvation and the last in judgment. But Paul says, no, their priority is first applies to both. Paul's like Uncle Ben in Spider-Man. When, when Uncle Ben says, with great power comes great responsibility, Paul says the same thing. No, that the Jews would be first in both salvation and in judgment. There is no religious favoritism on the day of judgment. There is no playing favorites. There is no special religious exemptions because of who God is in his nature. God shows no partiality. Now, did God elect Israel? Yes. Did God show special favor to Israel like his only son? Yes. Does God still love Israel and have a future plan for ethnic Israel? Yes. We're going to see that in Romans 11. But here, Paul isn't talking about his redemptive plan through Israel. Here, God is talking about God's future plans for Israel. Israel. Here, Paul is talking about God's final judgment. And on that day, there's going to be a level playing field. Because here's Paul's point. God does not show favoritism. Again, we have to be careful of applying this, but there's this principle of God's impartiality that is important for us as we look at our lives. If you're here and you think you will have some spiritual advantage on the last day because of your spiritual heritage, this should be a wake-up call for you. If you think that because you were born in a Christian home or you grew up in church or you went to youth group, or you participated in religious rituals, that that does not, that, that, that does, that does not mean that you're going to escape judgment on the last day. Because on that day, there is no partiality with God. Your fate for eternity will not be based on the faith of your family. It will not be based on the faith of your church. It will be based only on your decision if you have repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It's been said many times, and it's true. God has no spiritual grandchildren. So let me ask you, if you profess Christ here today, is the assurance of your salvation on that final day of judgment, is it based on the fact that you are raised in a Christian home? Is it based on the fact of your religious involvement? Or is it because you've repented and trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior? This is important for us. This is important for us also, for parents, and for all of us as a church as we minister to parents and their children. Parents, grandparents, singles in our church who are role models for our kids, we need to model how we are all dependent on the gospel for each of our spiritual lives. We need to make sure we teach children that everyone needs the gospel, 
not just them out there, but especially, yes, our children in here that are raised in a Christian home and that go to children's church and that go to Awana and that go to youth group. The gospel is something that we all need. I'm thankful for, for the, the, the people that have ministered with a godly heritage of teaching this in children's ministry over the years. I'm thankful for Mary Alice and Cheryl and so many who have emphasized this. We're going to teach truth, but we're going to point to the gospel because we all need it. We need to not just train children with good behavior. We do. We need to teach and train and correct and discipline, but we need to show them how that, that good behavior is impossibly to consistently manifest without a new heart. And they need the gospel to give them a new heart. We need to model for our children how not just their good works come from a new heart, but how our new works and our obedience flow from the gospel. We need to show them that, that, that it's the Holy Spirit who helps us live in light of that gospel. That means sometimes, actually all the times it happens, we need to be the ones who are confessing our sin to our children. When we get angry with our children, when we're impatient with our children, when we sin against our children, we need to confess our sin to our kids. Why? Because we're not their savior. And we're not our savior. But we have a savior who has dealt with sin on the cross. And so we are those who confess our sin. We need to help our kids see their lives and their struggles and their responsibilities and their trials all in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the last day, it won't matter what family they come from. It won't matter how much they came to church with their family. It won't matter, matter what Christian experiences they had. It will only matter if they've trusted in the gospel, for God shows no partiality. Then Paul makes one last argument. Let's move through this a little quickly because of time. We see the impartiality of God because of his revelation. See, there's a challenging question of how does the, this last part of the section relate to the rest of, the, of Paul's argument. And what Paul's doing here is he's giving an illustration. So he's saying, for, for instance, or in other words, here's another way as you think about God's impartiality. You see, Paul so far has been saying, there is no difference. There's no advantages between Jew and Gentile. And the argument might be saying, no, there is an important difference between Jew and Gentile, is that the Jews have the law. They know these truths about God. The Gentiles don't. There is an advantage there. Well, look at what Paul says about this advantage of the law. Look in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Clearly, the next few verses, the law is the focus. You see it used 11 times in five verses. Paul's talking about the Mosaic law recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. It's given alone to Israel. Israel is responsible for that law. So Paul describes Israel as being under the law or in the sphere of the law. In contrast to Israel, we see that they are the Gentiles that are without the law. Now look at the contrast there. The result of Gentiles sinning without the law in verse 12 is perishing, God's wrath. But the result of Jews sinning under the law is judgment. It's another image of God's wrath. So here's Paul's argument. There's no difference. There's no advantage just by having the law, just by possessing the law. When you stand before God in the last day, there's no difference salvation-wise because when you sin against God and his law, whether you have it or not, the result's the same. Righteous judgment under God's wrath for sin. And then look at Paul's reasoning then in verse 13. For because, verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You see the contrast that he makes again here? 
Those who only hear the law, those who only have the law, they will not be righteous. That's the noun form of the verb justify. They will not be declared righteous before God on the last day. But in contrast to them, to the hearers, is the doers. Those who are doers of the law, they will be justified, declared righteous. It's not about having the law. It's not about being Jew and having the law, being Gentile and not having the law. It's the doers of the law. Hearing the law is of no salvific advantage. Only those who do the law will be declared righteous before God. And here's the reason. For, for this reason, look at verses 14 through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, here's Paul's proof that the Jews have no advantage on the last day just by having or hearing the law. It's examples of this, these Gentiles who do what the law requires, which means we need to ask, who are these Gentiles? Who are the examples here that Paul sets up? There's two major interpretations to this, this who these Gentiles are. There's some that are saying these are Gentile Christians. See, there's Gentile Christians. They have the law because the Holy Spirit's written on their hearts, and so now you see them consistently obeying the law. That's possible, but it's not the best interpretation of this verse. The context of this verse would give a different understanding. This, the, I see as a stronger position. As these Gentiles who do what the law requires are not Gentile Christians who are saved, but Gentile unbelievers who are headed for condemnation. See, it's supporting Paul's point in the previous verse, not the hearers who are justified. Look how this logic works. These Gentiles by nature, he's going to emphasize this twice, twice, do not have the law. Again, do not have the law. And yet sometimes they live doing what the law says. And by living somehow, sometimes by doing what the law says, it shows that somehow they in some way do have the law. They've never heard the law. They've never read the law. They don't have the law. But sometimes that somehow they have the law. Paul says they're a law to themselves. Even without having the law, they have the law on themselves. That does not describe Christians. We are not a law to ourselves. This is describing unbelieving Gentiles who without ever hearing of God's word, who ever, ever, without believing in God, still sometimes live in ways that are accordance to what God says. They know that murder is wrong. They know that adultery is wrong. They know that stealing is wrong and so forth. I mean, we see this, right? With our friends, with our family. Not everyone out there is described as, 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 as bad as Romans 1 describes. We see evidence of, of God's grace as well in their lives. We see evidence of some common morality as being in the image of God that echoes God's law, don't we? How is this possible, Paul's asking? How is someone who's never heard the law actually doing what the law says? And Paul says it's because the works of the law are written on their hearts. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean they're saved or they're not saved? Well, look at Paul's description of that verb. Now, if you have a, 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 NASB or an NIV, you see a bunch of ing words, I-N-G verbs in verse 15. Those are participles. They're describing how the works of the law are written on their hearts. How is the law written on their hearts? By having their conscience bear witness. How does the conscience work? having their conflicting thoughts both accusing and excusing them. You see that? There are times, yes, that they do what the law requires, so their conscience excuses them. But it's not consistent. It's not genuine obedience. It is not saving obedience. These are unbelievers because sometimes their conscience accuses them and will even accuse them, verse 16, on the last day of God's judgment. These aren't Christians. 
because this isn't Holy Spirit-powered and obedience. Paul's talking about unsaved Gentiles here, and here's his point. If unsaved Gentiles, who've never heard the law, never read the law, sometimes live according to the law, if Gentiles have that, even that kind of knowledge of the law, then Jews are of no advantage on the last day just by having and hearing the law. Both Jews and Gentiles and every single person that God has created will be accountable, not according to whether they had the law of God in the scriptures or not, but for their failure to keep the law, whether they see it in the scriptures or that's written on their hearts. It's not the possession of the scriptures that matters on the last day. It's the grace-motivated obedience to the scriptures that matters. My friends, this is true for us as well. The Bible, by owning a Bible, does not save you. And you're saying, yeah, I know. Reading the Bible does not save you in itself. Hearing the Bible does not save you in itself. Studying and knowing the Bible does not save you in itself. Memorizing the Bible does not save you in itself. None of that will matter by itself on the last day of God's judgment. The Bible is not a talisman. The Bible is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. The Bible, and even having the knowledge of the Bible, will not save in itself. See, the difference between us and the world is not that we're smarter because we have heard and know the Bible. So if people want to get saved, they need to get smart like us. That is not the message. No. Paul says, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Listen, as a church, we cherish the Bible. We listen to the Bible. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We meditate on the Bible. We memorize the Bible. Why? Not to be knowledgeable hearers, but to be grace-motivated doers. That's the point. We're not trying to be knowledgeable hearers, but because of God's work in us in Christ, that we'd be grace-motivated doers. See, we as Christians are people who have experienced the grace of God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that would motivate us, who would love Christ because of his work for us, to, to motivate us to grace-motivated obedience and good works, which give evidence of this new life that we have in Christ. One of my favorite hymns, and you might have been able to tell because my children love to sing it, is Come Thou Fount. I remember when Isaac, I think he was like one, one years old down in the nursery, and he's humming, come thou fount, as a one-year-old. So we, you can tell we sing it a lot. But there's a line in there, I think they could just sum this up, sum up what Paul's saying. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. That's Romans 2, 1 through 16 in an argument. Every one of us is a debtor to God's grace. There are no religious advantages. There are no religious exceptions on the final day of God's judgment. Because religious privileges contradict God's impartiality. There is no impartiality with God. God doesn't play dice, and he doesn't play favorites. But thanks be to God for his gracious gift in his son, Jesus Christ, that although we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we also all can be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption in his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth. Father, help us to see how to grace how great a debtor 
daily we are constrained to be. So we give you all thanks and praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.